Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, we're diving back into our Genesis series. Um, I've got an article posted for this uh, as we continue to look in depth at what's going on in the text of Genesis 1. Uh, and again, really what we're looking at here is what's going on in Genesis 1 verse 1 through 2 verse 3 because that's the seven-day storyline or narrative of what is transpiring here in the, in the text. Um, as we look at day, the word day as it gets used in the text of Genesis 1 uh, and the first three verses of Genesis 2, um, we need to pay special attention to how it's used and how it's understood. And, and what we're going to explore here uh, in this episode of the podcast really is about how the days are understood based on the presentation of those days in the text. So, um, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, uh, gives us an account of creation that takes the shape of a seven-day sequence. We've talked about that sequence in the past and mentioned uh, some of the issues that might arise with that sequence, but now the, the sequence itself and the days themselves need sort of specific and serious attention. What is up with the days of creation as accounted for in the text of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3? How do we understand them? What's going on with them? Um, well, first, we need to remember that Genesis 1, 1 through 2, and Genesis 2, 1 through 3 don't follow the pattern of the six days framed and structured so tightly in Genesis 1, 3 through 31. There's that rhythmed pattern and structure, and it's uh, intense, and it's intentional, and it's present in the six days of the creative activity in 1, 3 through 1, 31. But what's in verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 1 and what's in verses 1 through 3 of Genesis 2 don't follow the same pattern. So we are left with questions about why don't those two mentions of God's rest and God's initial creative activity, why, why don't they follow the pattern of the other six days? Uh, second, uh, we need to explore the use or the uses of the word day in the text, something we're going to endeavor a little bit in this piece. Uh, finally, we need to consider the ways in which this passage has been understood and discussed throughout the history of the church. Um, from very early on, there are a series, there's a range of opinion and understanding of what is going on with Genesis chapter 1 and the sequence of six days. And our contemporary understandings are really just modern morphings of those ancient understandings. Christian theology finds so much unity on matters of dogma. However, so much of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, is discussed across Christendom, such that we, we should probably approach this text with humility and a willingness to listen to what's going on with the text itself. What Christian history presents us with is a spectrum of belief regarding the days of Genesis 1, how those days work, what's going on with those days, and we're going to explore that here and going forward. And we would do well to be good listeners to that range of opinion and those um, understandings as they get unpacked and as they unpack the depth of the inspired text that God intended for us in Genesis 1. What we're going to broadly look at here are the most prominent teachings related to the days of Genesis 1. And there's roughly three of them uh, as far as major camps of study here. So, first, 
Um, I want to say most prominently, um, but I'm not entirely sure. So first and probably most prominently, uh, the days of Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 are seven 24-hour days. Now this view morphs into a couple of variations, and we're going to consider each of them rather briefly here. But most commonly in this camp, broadly speaking, is the idea that the seven 24-hour days of Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 constitute one earth week. They are the days of a single week, Sunday through Saturday, if you will. If we follow the, the um, scriptural model and the Jewish model of understanding that day seven is Saturday, and that's why the Jewish Sabbath was Saturday. Um, so, so then, they constitute the days of an earth week. Uh, the, the highly rhythmic structure of evening and morning reinforces this idea and allows us to view the seventh day even though it doesn't specify evening and morning or the patterns of the rest of the text, it, it allows us to view it in keeping with the other days, even without explicit use of the pattern. Uh, the pattern's been so firmly established that the mention of the seventh day just sort of defaults to the pattern, um, even if the, the explicitly rhythmic pattern of the six days isn't present here. Uh, specifically, this 24-hour day, one earth week, view hangs its interpretation on the mention of evening and morning for each day of the six. Evening and morning indicate the passage of a 24-hour day for each of the days that are mentioned. This is just how we take this view. Why mention evening and morning if what we're looking at isn't the specific 24-hour window of a day that's been set up for us in the text of day one and day four? This view typically includes Genesis 1-1 and 2 as the first action of God's creation on the first day of creation. So then God created the heavens and the earth and light on day 1. And the moment that uh, starts verse 3 of and God said is actually in the middle, so to speak, of what he's doing on day 1. The challenge with this for me is that this view does not account for the change in tense from verse 2 to verse 3. Remember, verses 1 and 2 are both framed in the perfect tense, while verse 3 begins a consecutive imperfect that will run us into day 7. We're going to have to talk about that in a little bit. But some of, some of this and some individuals in this camp make an argument that 1, 1 through 2 is a summary statement of what's about to transpire in the rest of the days. But that does not account for the idea that God's activity on certain days, which we're going to talk about in a later podcast, is more about organization than about manufacturing. In other words, it seems to me that what God has said in verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 1 is the statement of his manufacturing. He has made, manufactured the heavens and the earth. And on some of the days, God will manufacture things like light. But on some of the other days, he doesn't manufacture dry land. He uncovers it by setting boundaries for the waters. So this is a summary statement. doesn't necessarily work because what we don't then see in the rest of the days are the specific creations that are supposed to be highlighted. We see God organizing something that's already been made. Now, another view that gets embedded inside a 24-hour day framework is that the days are 24-hour days, but they may not actually be the days of a single Earth week. Instead, 
These are the six specific days of God's creative activity and the seventh day of his rest, but there may very well be untold periods of time between each day. Now, this one's rather new to me, uh, and I'm intrigued by it. Um, the, the view highlights the change in tense from verse 2 uh, to verse 3 and asserts that 1 and 2 present us with the creation of the heavens and the earth before the sequence of days begins, something I think I'm inclined to. But God then created the heavens and the earth prior to day 1, and on day 1 began a specific sequential work after that in which time begins and what he's created is augmented and organized in the six days each day, then, in Genesis 1, 3 through 31, in this view, is a 24-hour day on God, on, on which, sorry, God makes the elements, or he organizes the heavens and the earth, that he's already manufactured. The challenge with this is that the most natural reading of the sequence of days in Genesis 1 seems to be an earth week. So, we're, we're, we're stuck with this challenge um, because it, it doesn't account for a sort of the most natural reading of the text as a specific earth week. Um, that's, that's the 24-hour framework as we look at it, okay? Now, second, as we consider the days of Genesis 1, and the first three verses of Genesis 2 are that the days of Genesis 1 are indefinite periods of time. This is often referred to as the day-age theory, or the day-age view. Um, as we look at this, and as we pay attention to this view, the view hinges on uh, metaphorical use of the word day throughout the text of scripture. For example, Psalm 90 verse 4 says that for a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, or as the watch in the night. Um, Justin Martyr used this reference in Psalm 90 verse 4 to help him with his day, age, quote-unquote, reading of Genesis chapter 1. He believed that the time frame was not the major point of the text, therefore was not necessarily central or as important as the kind of creation that God was setting himself about. So, uh, furthermore, as we look at this view of day age, Genesis 2 verse 4 reads like this in the Hebrew text. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made the heavens and the earth. Notice that the phrase in the day is used to discuss when God made the heavens and the earth. And if we take seriously what's happening in Genesis chapter 1, God didn't make it all in a single day. There's a sequence of six. So the use of day in 2 verse 4 is often taken to be a sort of in my day kind of reference where we're using the word day or like we use the word today in the United States. Culture looks like this. What we're, not, what we're talking about seems to be a metaphorical use in 2 verse 4. Four, the day there is used to discuss when God made the heavens and the earth. And this mention of day is used throughout scripture as a way to refer to a particular time without being specific to an actual 24-hour day on the calendar. We use the word da day, sorry, we use the word day that way in English all the time. And we use it that way in languages all the time. Now, 
Genesis 2.17, God tells Adam, in the day that he eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he will die. Does God seem to mean that on a specific 24-hour day, he's going to die after he's eaten from the tree? Well, no, it doesn't seem that way since Adam lives for a good long time after he eats from the tree. So this day-age view uh, emphasizes the ways in which the word day is used without being used as referring to a specific 24-hour day. Now, some of this hinges on the fact that certain readers of this day-age view pay attention to the highly rhythmic and structured nature of Genesis chapter 1 and argue that it's doing something poetic, not something in prose, which would indicate to readers this way that if they're looking at something that's a more uh, poetic than prose text, then they can, th then the days might be more metaphorical than literal. A view like this allows us to more readily consider the implications of form and fullness in, in the unpacking of the activity of each day. In addition, it allows us to ask questions of God's process. Like the 24-hour view, that allows those days not necessarily to be the days of an earth week. These process questions might overlap with our current and, and ongoing scientific discoveries and understandings. However, this view may not take seriously enough the, the emphasis in Genesis 1 of evening and morning for each of the days. So it works in a sense. It works especially if you consider Genesis 1 to be something that's more poetic. Um, but it doesn't necessarily work if the emphasis of evening and morning with each of the days of creation is there for a specific reason and not just to say, well, this is something God was doing, but the important bits are the, the bits of purpose and form and fullness. So we have to, that, that's an objection that we have to take seriously in this day-age view. Finally, at least for the purposes of this article, is the last of the big camps. There is a camp of views. Uh, that says the days of Genesis 1 are actually there for the explanation of the kind of creation God has made and not to provide us with a calendar of God's process. Um, in other words, views like John Walton's Cosmic Temple view about form and fullness falls into this kind of category. So we explored that in the last one. When we look at this kind of view, we still need to be careful here because you still need a sky and the seas in order to put birds and fish in them. While the process or the timeline may not be the major point according to this view, you still need the process laid out in the sequence of Genesis 1 in order to get the creation that we have. So the process and the sequence of Genesis 1 matters, and this view doesn't seem to consider that process and sequence as important as that process or sequence of creation. What it does is argues that the time or the matter of days isn't the main point, but it is still a serious point of the text that needs more consideration than this view seems to give it. Another view as we unpack this camp is an idea that Genesis 1 has days that are not necessarily the days of God's process of creation. Instead, they are the days on which God revealed his creation process to human beings. This view typically leans into Genesis 1, 1 through 2, and argues that the work of creating the heavens and the earth was done then in verses 1 and 2, either outside of time entirely, because time doesn't begin until day 1, something we'll talk about 
next time, or in an instant, regardless of whether or not time had started yet. What the days then mark in Genesis 1 is the revelation of God's good and orderly creation to individuals who are going to go ahead and retell the story. This view does not take seriously enough, in my mind, the inference and implications of the text that God is active in the specific frames of the days of Genesis 1, 1 through 31. Um, so then, where do we land? Well, if you're me, the more I spend time in this text, the more like St. Augustine I find the days of Genesis 1 to be challenging and incredible simultaneously. First, the days of Genesis 1, verses 3 through 31, seem to clearly mark six 24-hour days. I think that is the most natural reading of the text. Those days form three pairs of parallel days in which God's activity and the form and fullness of the days finds patterning that is deeply significant. The seventh day seems to match Genesis 1, 1 through 2 as a kind of unbounded period of time. However, it's mentioned specifically as the seventh day in the consecutive imperfect tense as following the six-day sequence also implies a 24-hour day for day seven. It is on the surface then, I think, a 24-hour day. But I think it is also a kind of metaphorical time frame to talk about God's rest from his work of creation. The last mention of God's rest on the seventh day in 2 verse 3 is framed in the perfect tense and is a completed past action with ongoing implications. That's what the perfect denotes. So what we're left with is the seventh day contains God, God's completed rest from his work of creation and implies an ongoing effect of that rest moving beyond the seventh day. So Genesis 1, 1 through 2 seems to me to take place before the beginning of the first day of creation. The days 1 through 6 are 24-hour days, and day 7 is both a 24-hour day and a long period of God's rest from creation, which still has an effect on us today. See the Hebrews' invitation to join God in his Sabbath rest, to enter the rest. Hmm, it's interesting to me. Our next adventure in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 will move us into a discussion of exactly what is it that God is doing on his specific activity, uh, in his specific activity of creation. What is he doing on each of the days and what is he actually creating on each of those days? That's our next exploration. I hope this is helpful and um, rewarding to you. Until next time on the podcast, have a good one.